In W.S. Merwin's poem for the anniversary of my death, in Merwin's poem for the anniversary of my death, he writes these words. Every year without knowing it, I have passed the day when the last fires will wave to me and the silence will set out, tireless traveler, like the beam of a lightless star. Every year, without knowing it, we pass through our death date. Every year, we pass through that day unaware. And if you looked at the title of this sermon, you know, maybe that day's coming soon. Tuesday. Does Tuesday work for you? <laughs> March 22nd, 2000 and... Or maybe we've passed through our death date. Maybe it was March 11th, the day the tsunami and earthquake hit Japan. Or maybe it was yesterday, March 19th, the anniversary of the war in Iraq. Or maybe it was September 11th. Or maybe your death date is the same as your birth date. Wouldn't that be something? The point is, every year without knowing it, we live right through our death date. Every day when we wake up and see ourselves in the mirror, assuming we can see, we should say to ourselves, life, it's terminal. And then really stop to look at ourselves in the mirror. Really stop to look and see the graying hair or the receding hairline or the new wrinkles. Stop to look and see the eyes, our own eyes. The learning, the compassion, the experience held there, to stop for just a moment and feel ourselves in a body, in a time, in a place, in this world, and then say again, life, it's terminal. And to look and see our beautiful face once more. But despite the sure fact of our dying, We live in a culture with a serious denial of death. It's as if death and aging are embarrassments, something gone terribly wrong. For every wrinkle or ache, there is a cream or an ointment or an injection to supposedly make us young, to live forever. And if you've experienced a great loss, as I know many many of you in this room have, the culture can barely make room at times for your grief, for your tears, your soul coming to terms with the landscape that has changed so much. And so if we're not careful, the culture will feed us a steady stream of death avoidance strategies Mindless entertainment, ways to numb out and tune out, things to buy, news that is not really news to watch. The list goes on and on. And I know that some of you, because of your line of work or because of life circumstances, have a more intimate relationship with death, have a different understanding of death, perhaps. But for so many of us, it's as if death is in the room over there and we just can't even imagine that. And so there's this level 
of denial. And I would say the stakes are high when we run from or refuse to confront something that is so much a part of living. Let me share this story with you. Once a rich and mighty Persian walked in his garden and one of his servants ran up to him crying out, yelling out that he had just encountered death who had threatened him. He begged his master to give him his fastest horse so that he could make haste and flee to Tehran, which he could reach that very evening if he had the horse. So the master said, yes, of course, here's the horse. And the servant galloped off on the horse. On returning to his home, the master himself met death and questioned him. Why did you terrify and threaten my servant? I did not threaten him. I only showed my surprise at still finding him here when I had planned to meet him in Tehran tonight, (laughs) said death. And however you understand that story, however that story lands in your life, what seems true to me is that by racing from death or those things that we fear most, we inadvertently spiritually, physically, emotionally, run into even bigger trouble. So rather than live in denial, author Sam Keen asks us, what is to be gained? What might be gained by inviting death to be our daily companion? How might a practice of conscious awareness of death shape our lives? How can we do this? We can start with our own death date, imagining that, or better, our own metaphorical uh, death bed, if you will. This is a metaphor, and I know maybe some of you are thinking death bed and death day on a Sunday morning. This is a little bit morbid, but it's metaphorical. It's It's a practice. It's an imaginative place that you can anchor yourselves for the purpose of getting in touch with death, yours and others. And I I think with the events going on in the world right now, this might be an easier thing to do than at other times. So maybe you can imagine a deathbed with fresh flowers by the window or sunlight streaming through or music in the background. And now, as Virginia Morris says in her book, her really good book, Talking About Death Won't Kill You, get settled into that space. Spend some time with death. Roll it around in your mind. Don't obsess, she says, but do examine the reality of death. And then you might imagine in that space some of your closest friends and family who are there with you. And the only agenda of this gathering, this deathbed gathering, is to have a long, honest conversation about death and fears of death. As Virginia Morris asks, what is it exactly that makes you panic at two o'clock in the morning about a tumor that makes your heart race when you contemplate the end of the life of someone you love? What aspect of death is most frightening? Not frightening. 
It is here in this imaginary place we can project ourselves to the final days of our life, that deathbed or whatever works for you, but on the edge of death, it is in that place that we can break through some of the denial around death that is so pervasive. And that place, when we imagine ourselves there, can be a launching pad that pushes us back to life, to conversations with those we love. And so when Virginia Morris takes the courageous step and moves from imagining about talking to her mother to actually talking to her mother about death, she says, we discovered a number of things. She goes on, first of all, I realize that my mom, like many people, is not afraid of respirators and feeding tubes as much as she is afraid of being a burden. She does not want her children, or anyone else for that matter, to feel burdened having to care for her. With this out in the open, they continue talking to one another. And Virginia tells her mother that when she is close to death, Virginia would like to hold her if she can, so hold her comfortably in her arms. She doesn't have to die like this, Virginia says, but I don't want her to ever feel that she has to protect me from her dying. And the truth is, says Virginia, I would very much like to be with her, holding her, stroking her, kissing her, touching her at such a time. Virginia goes on. Mom responds that she has vivid images of me putting my daughter to sleep when she was a baby. I would hold her in my arms, smooth back her fine blonde hair, stroke the soft skin along the edge of her face, and then run my finger down the bridge of her nose as her eyes began to close. That, my mother tells me, is what she wants me to do when she is dying. That, she says, seems to be a wonderful way to go. It is really important also to say that this scenario that they have talked about may not happen. It might be that there is an accident or something else that prevents that from happening. But what is important about that conversation and that tenderness and that love that they have expressed for one another is that they have laid that out on the table. Even if it doesn't happen, they have crossed a threshold with one another. In the book Tuesdays with Maury, Maury, who is dying he passes on a lot of wisdom and teachings to his former student, Mitch. And one of those is this little nugget from Maury. He says to Maury, everyone knows they're going to die, but nobody believes it. (laughs) If we did, he says, we would do things differently. There's a better approach There's a better approach, he says, to know you're going to die and to be prepared for it at any time. That way you can actually be more involved in your life while you're living. 
So imagining ourselves on that deathbed or at the edge of death can also give us a chance to reevaluate our relationship with people, with stuff, with our work, with money even, especially perhaps money. The following story illustrates this uh, transformation, perhaps, or illustrates a, a piece about money and, and our, all that's tied up with that. A doctor told a rich man that he would die in a couple of weeks. So the rich man called three of his uh, friends, a pastor and two other friends. He called them to his bedside and to his pastor. He said, I know you told me I can't take any of it with me, but I think I've found a way. I have prepared three sealed envelopes, each containing $10,000 in cash. And when I die, I want each of you to walk by the casket and drop in your envelope with the $10,000. So after the funeral, the three friends come back together and they're talking and the pastor says, well, I really have, I have a confession to make. Uh, we needed to repair the church organ or the church piano. And so I, I took $2,000 out and used that for the organ and put the remaining 8000 in. And the other friend confesses, well, I took $5,000 out for a health clinic that I'm starting and I just put the other 5000 in. And the third friend says, well, friends, my conscience is clear. I did just what our good friend asked. I kept my envelope, took out both of yours, and dropped in a check for the full amount of 30000 <laughs> And it's a silly, funny story. And crafty and dishonest, maybe, as the third friend was, he did get it partly right. <laughs> because in the face of death, that reality... Money becomes meaningless. Stuff becomes baggage. And let me tell you, let me share with you, at not one single memorial service I have ever ever been at or officiated at or spoken at has a person been remembered or celebrated because of the money or the things that they had. It doesn't happen. What's remembered, what touches people. And it's a complex time sometimes at a memorial service. Lots of family dynamics and unresolved issues. But what is most present, the tears and the laughter and all of that, is because of the love or the presence or the time or the teaching or the fact that this person was in your life in a meaningful way. That's what's remembered and celebrated. As silly maybe as that story is with the badger and his friends, It's what we give away, what we share that is remembered and recalled and celebrated in someone's life. It's the love we give away that matters. And that's the paradox. That's the paradox of cozying up to death. The more we settle into the reality of death and dying, the more we are propelled back to life and living and love even through our grief, even through the loss. The gift of this awareness of death is that we ultimately unmask. We ultimately unmask our petty loyalties and begin to recognize what is truly deserving of our time and commitment. Maybe less Facebook and more face-to-face talking. Maybe less time worrying about how to change others 
and more time focused on who we want to be in the world. If you've had this experience, and I know some of you have, when you come that close to death, or death is your walking companion, the priority list and what matters changes very quickly. You have a sense of what truly matters, and the rest just falls to the side. Honestly, facing death reminds us that the foundation of a meaningful life is love. When we remember this, our perspective changes. In those moments of awakening, we can ask, if I don't use my gifts and my time and my money in this lifetime to spread things that will, to support things that will outlive me and that will help spread love and healing and justice in this world, when? When will I use those things? So in that joke I just told, the third friend only gets it right if he uses that money to help make the world a better place, if he blesses others or the world in some way. So here's the thing. Talking or even thinking about death won't kill you. It will remind you It will remind you like a flashing neon sign that this is your life. It is precious. Are you living the life you are called to live? Talking about death might encourage you to mend relationships, seek forgiveness, and to fully explore the creative gifts and talents that you have. Talking about death won't kill you. In fact, it may even remind you, as a colleague of mine says, that we need to fear not death, but life. We need to fear not death, but life. Fear an empty life, or a loveless life, or a life that does not build upon the gifts that you have been given. A life that is like a living death. A life in which you never pause to breathe. What we need to fear is not death, but squandering the lives we have been miraculously given. And whether you know it or not, you're here this morning because of that. Because you want to be reminded. I want to be reminded of the preciousness of my life. I don't want to squander this life I have been given. And so today, today as we live through what is surely a death date for some of us, may the spirit of life fill this place and may we be reminded that we are indeed dying so that we can live and love and bless and savor with all of our hearts. I love you, and may it be so.